talk is about understanding change, anicca. There's a chant that I have found very helpful over my years of practice. And the chant means all conditioned things are arising and passing away. Understanding this brings the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. So I'd like to chant it for you. Anicca vata sankara upatuvaya damino upakituva niruchanti desa upasumo sukho Anicca change, happiness. That chant, that chant has, um, from the first time I heard it, had such a power for me. And the, just the feeling of it, the sense of um, something coming through that that's very deep. It's not the happiness of getting what we want or the happiness of uh, pushing away something that we don't want. But it's, it's understanding that there's a happiness uh, that's deeper than birth and death. It's a, a great kind of happiness. It's not that other kinds of happiness aren't wonderful, but it's a very deep kind of happiness, which is peace. Vipassana means seeing clearly. Wisdom is seeing things as they are. And one of the things that we start to see clearly and understand is the profundity of change in this world, in life. That life actually is change, it's movement. The more we understand change, our relationship to what is happening starts to change. And as you've heard us say over and over again, it's not what's happening that's important. It's our relationship to what's happening that's important. And this shift in the way we relate to experience comes about from understanding change. All conditioned things, that's a lot of things. All conditioned things are arising and passing away. Anything that takes birth in this world, anything that appears will die. Anything that takes form will live itself out and disappear. And so this includes bodies, it includes physical form, physical phenomena, physical matter, stones, the Grand Canyon, trees, turtles, stars, galaxies, the movement of the breath, me, you know, everything that takes birth. It's so all conditioned things. It's, it's so profound. Even if we just take the physical matter of the weather here in New England, you know, this, it's incredible that 80 degree weather that we had a little while ago to change to this, you know, the frost in the morning, and there was ice on the windshield this morning of the car, 80 degrees to freezing, you know, and that wind, you know, the wind that happened, it's wild in the autumn here. Just to accept that, just to understand that, is difficult for us. If one looks more closely at one's whole being, one's body and heart and mind, it's not only the body that's changing, but the, the mind, the, the thoughts move much quicker than physical sensation. Emotions, mental states, 
the shift that can happen in five minutes from this incredible peace to rage, you know. <laughs> it's, it's just incredible with the swish of the Buddha's tail. You know, we can move from agony to ecstasy, from ecstasy to agony. Uh, change. Equanimity doesn't stay the same. Darn. <laughs> He'd think something in this practice would stay the same. Metta. You know, it's just hard. Mindfulness is as ephemeral as anything. It's... Uh, there's not much solid. There really isn't much to hold on to. It's wonderful at times to intellectually consider this, to intellectually come to terms with this, to intellectually figure life and death out. <clears throat> we can very securely stay in our heads with this and see that from a distance that things aren't so solid. Uh, but to understand intuitively, you know, from a very deep place, from a very open place, that birth and death of consciousness is happening moment by moment, to be able to live with that, to accept the in implications of that, it's, it's not so easy <clears throat> on a deep level <clears throat> to really get that I am not my body, to really get that I am not my heart, I am not my mind, I am not my emotions, I am not my thoughts. There's a kind of dissolving or ungluing that happens in this mindfulness practice. And by Paying attention as you do. All you have to do is keep doing it. You know, you're just paying attention over and over again. One starts to see how insubstantial life is. And be, being able to see that I am not my body means that the person next to you isn't their body. And not only that, that, that chipmunk or the bird in your hand, that bird isn't their body. Uh, and it, it's just to be able to understand the implications of it. it. It goes beyond oneself. It goes, the implications go everywhere. It penetrates everything. When we get an intuitive glimpse of how unsolid life really is, it really shakes up who we think we are. And sometimes we might feel a sense of relief from understanding change. Or we might feel like the rug guts has gotten pulled out from underneath us. We might feel helpless and, or powerless in the face of change. We might feel terrified. We might feel betrayed. You know, this isn't what I thought it was. We might feel deep peace. There are many ways that we can see our relationship to change. The Buddha started <clears throat> his emphasis on the characteristics of existence, the characteristics of life, um, with anicca, that there's all conditioned things are arising and passing away. And you'll hear us over and over encourage when you notice something to see if you can notice what happens to it. That's a lot of the practice. You know, it's very simple. If you can settle into the moment enough to notice something and then to see what happens to it, whether it's a breath or a sound or a thought or an emotion, does it change? How does it change? What happens to the mind? What happens to a sound? What happens to the breath? What happens to anger? One of the reasons that we encourage people to wait a while before they write a note, you know, say you're upset about something, 
if you wait 24 hours, one's relationship to that experience, whatever it is, usually changes dramatically. It might be that you still need to write the note. But if one is writing the note out of aversion or attachment, usually if you wait 24 hours, it changes and the motivation will change. And often we'll be sorry for writing something and sending it right away because it has the energy of aversion of a t- an attachment and we didn't even know it. You don't even know it until it passes or we'll feel like we deserve to write it. We'll be so caught up in it. Uh, and you know those notes that are signed meta, you know, but they're just, just reeking with aversion. You know, will you please stop doing blah, 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 blah. Meta. <laughs> it's so fascinating. You know, if we just kept a, a, we made a book of notes people didn't send, you know, it would be great. <laughs> Well, if we even had a book of the ones people do send, it's really worth saving. <laughs> there was a student who asked a Zen teacher named Koben Chino Roshi, what does gate gate paramsam gate bodhisvaha mean? And the Roshi answered, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything, actually. Everything is falling apart. Fall apart, fall apart. All together, fall apart. (laughs) This is life. Everything is falling apart. Fall apart, fall apart. All together, fall apart. We can't do anything about it. That's what gate gate means, really. There is nothing to hang on to. That's the essence of the practice. Whenever we see clearly that everything is falling apart, then it's easy to let things be. It's easy to let things come and go because we actually see how insubstantial they are. You can't hold on to, you can't identify with experience when you see it like that, that it's that insubstantial. And it's actually funny, you know, when when you're in that space and you see it, you see how funny it is that we get so caught up in all this stuff. But then when, we, when it becomes solid, that line between it being really clearly insubstantial and, when, and the line between it getting really solid and real, they're like two different worlds. You know, when you're in the world that it's very solid and it's my body and it's my eyes that are going, <laughs> you know, it's my hair that's going gray, you know, whatever it is, uh, it's very different. It's a different world than seeing that the eye is just coolness, warmth, disappearing. Uh, And it's important to be able to respect and accept those different worlds, learn to maneuver through those different territories. There's that much change. There's the times when we can see clearly and the times when we aren't seeing clearly. And that'll just keep coming and going, coming and going. That's part of this world of change. This ability to see clearly that what we think to be me or I is really just a momentary changing process. Uh, when we can understand that deeply, it just cuts through identification with experience as being I or me or mine. Through that disentangling, through that disidentification, there's more and more acceptance of change. There's less and less resistance to change. When one talks about anicca, it's very hard not to talk about dukkha or anatta because they're so uh, intertwined. When one understands change, 
it's quite clear that anything can happen. That's dukkha. Anything can happen. And that's hard for us, you know. Um, it's very vulnerable that anything can happen. It's very alive. You know, there's nothing more alive than understanding that. Uh, but it's, uh, it's hard to stay at that pitch of balance with that, that it's okay <laughs> that anything can happen. Um, extraordinarily vulnerable, extraordinarily alive. So not seeing dukkha is dukkha. And that's, <laughs> that's simple again. It's so funny. When we understand it, when we see dukkha, we're not in it. So being able to accept that anything can happen, to accept the vulnerability, comes out of the understanding of change. And then jumping to that place that is okay with it deeply uh, means that we see that it isn't personal. It's when we understand it from the point of view of um, emptiness. And that takes the sting out of dukkha. It takes the sting out of anicca. When we see that uh, the body is just earth, air, fire and water coming and going, the mind is just (laughs) out of control. You know, what we think of as normal, the mind, you know, as normal, if you take a look at it, it's really out of control. You know, if you just looked at judging, if you looked at judging other people and judging yourself, just took a day and counted them. It's out of control. <laughs> you can't stop it. You couldn't even remotely stop it. If you could, you would. Uh, and, and so we get back to the wall. And when you start to see how much of it is, how, how uh, anything can happen, a judgment can happen at any time, uh, and then there's the protection, is the mindfulness, seeing that it's just a thought, that we don't take it personally. And in a way, if you see how out of control on it, uh, how out of control it is, you couldn't possibly take it personally. You wouldn't dream of creating a mind like that. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> Then you'd be considered crazy. (laughs) When we have the sense that it isn't personal, we start to need to do anything with things. You know, there's there's a space that happens. Uh, There's a it's just this ability to let a thought come and go, and not do anything with it to let a judgment come and go. We don't take it personally. To let anger come and go. Today there was, there was (laughs) some, for me, some aversion coming up. There was someone doing something in my cellar that I didn't want to be there today when I was working on my talk. And it was just that I was having trouble concentrating. And this aversion came up and I, (laughs) it's like, I kept thinking, I can't work on my talk, aversion's happening. (laughs) And I was so resistant to the experience of the aversion that I couldn't work on my talk. And finally I thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, we're not going to get anywhere this afternoon unless I really open to this. So I just, okay, I don't want this person in my cellar, okay. You know, it was just, I couldn't accept that the aversion was there. And then I couldn't do anything. And finally, I just said, okay, I'll experience it. And it it disappeared. I couldn't control that coming up, but I could control how I related to it coming up. Finally, I was able to accept that change had happened. I was happily concentrated working on my talk, and then I couldn't, and I didn't like it. Uh, but once I could open to not liking it, I could work on the talk. I didn't have to do anything with the aversion. I didn't have to do anything with the person. I just needed to experience the anger. And when you can experience something, it will go. 
because you've given it life. When we resist something, it doesn't live. It just gets stuck. <laughs> when we open to something, it moves. It might take longer to move than you want, <laughs> but it will move. With our understanding of this change, we start to be able to surrender to the change. And we start to see that we don't have to struggle with life so much. That's the peace. We can let things come and go. We can let things appear because they've appeared, disappear, because they disappear. It's not a passivity. You know, it's not just laying back and being passive. There's a real alertness in this. It's a, it's a balance of being really there, which isn't passive, but it's soft. It's, it's open, it's surrendered. This is a poem by Reps. It's about birth and death. And it's, <clears throat> it's a letter, but it's, not, it's, it's just dear, and it's empty. <clears throat> dear emptiness. <laughs> it's dear. Dear, are we born? Do we die? How could we? We have nothing to do with it. Like leaves we flutter and let go. Let go. Birth may be a separation, death a reward, rest assured, reps. Are we born? Do we die? How could we? We have nothing to do with it. Rest assured. The spiritual journey is just that, asking those questions. Are we born? Do we die? This is what we're doing here, is trying to understand that. The attachment to form, the attachment to the body, this identification, it's easy to try to point out that it's an illusion. Um, but if you look at how much we're identified with it, it's, it's really powerful. There's a teacher named Sri Nazargadatta that um, said, don't accuse me of being born. Don't accuse me of dying. You know, there's a, such an understanding that I am not my body, that if you, if you see into that deeply enough, you wouldn't connect those events. Life is this momentary process of change. I am not the body. Uh, it's easy to say this, and it's not always easy to take in, to live, because the mindfulness has to be there to understand it. The form of the body appears. That's birth. It's conditioned. What is our relationship to birth? My own relationship to birth seems to have gotten very tangled up with death. In, in some kind of clarity, I would say that my own understanding of birth and death are interconnected rather than entangled, but that understanding has gone from entangled to intertwined many, many times in my life. So what I heard about my birth was that my mother was told by a doctor not to have any more children. She had lost, she had two, she lost two, and uh, she was told she would die if she had another baby. So she um, conceived me and was terrified the whole pregnancy that she would die. So we were both pronounced dead at my birth. I was pronounced dead. My mother was pronounced dead. So that's where there's this slight little 
single. My, under, my connection with birth is death. We were both brought back to life. And in my um, understanding of this, because I've had to really go back there many times and re-experience that and re-experience that, uh, and I feel like I had a kind of connection with the, the fear of life and the fear of death. It's like the more we're afraid of death, the more we're afraid of life. They're really the same. They're very interconnected. It's impossible to separate them. I think that that kind of birth makes it clearer that you can't really separate them. So what is birth? You know, that question is really important. What is it? What is death? In many ways, in conception, our consciousness enters a form. At death, consciousness leaves a form. But do we die? What dies? What is born? What dies? You know, these are really important questions. I remember that John Lennon once said that birth was like getting into a car <laughs> and driving it around through your life, and that uh, death was like leaving that car and just getting into it. Birth again was just getting into a new car. <laughs> and when he died, I felt really happy for him and that he understood that, you know, that, that, that it was that clear to him that the body is like a car. He might not have gotten the car you wanted. I seem to have gotten an Edsel instead of a Jaguar. <laughs> but it works sometimes. Ramana Maharshi, at age 17, had a deep realization. I mean, it was so profound. You know, he was realized from this. Basically, what he did was he thought about what happened when he died. He had a complete realization from just contemplating that. That's how powerful these questions are. What happens when our physical body dies? The other day I was um, invited on a hike to um, explore places nearby that Native people lived at. And so the range of time period was 2,000 years, 5,000 years, 12,000 years. Uh, and it was really interesting to imagine you know, what the land looks like now and to see how much change has happened, how much changes in our lives have happened. And, Everyone was kind of look, bending over, looking for a flint and arrowhead at these places. And they're all, all nearby. This quotation from a Navajo is around birth. It's called, Words Spoken by a Mother to Her Newborn Son as she cuts the umbilical cord. I cut from your middle the navel string. Know you. Understand that your birthplace is not your home. For you are a server and a warrior. You are the bird called Quetzal. You are the bird called Zazuan. You are the bird and warrior of the one who dwells in all places. This house where you are born is but a nest. It is a way station to which you have come. It is your point of entrance into this world. Here you sprout. Here you flower. Here you are severed from your mother as the chip is struck from the stone. that chip being struck from the stone. You know, there's so much uh, making of tools from stone, that chip 
struck from the stone. In this, there's such a respect for change. You know, there's such a respect for growth, not seeing that there's such a solidity in where we're born, you know, into the connection to the mother, to, you know, that there's this freedom in that to change, to not have to stay so solid. This connection to the one who dwells in all places, that depth of understanding that the birth is into something much bigger. Do you have that relationship to your birth? As I was saying, my relationship to my mother, to the giver of my life, uh, has been interesting because of this connection to death with birth. And in her life, she experienced so much suffering that her most wonderful experience was at my birth, the, the, the death experience that she had. So for her, that was the most wonderful moments of her life. So again, there's this strange connection for her, my birth, which was so scary to her and to me, and that we died, was actually an opening for her, an awakening. Uh, and she drank a lot, and what she would bring her so much passion and so much happiness was describing dying. And so she would talk about the bliss and the unrelenting light. You know, it was like this unrelenting bliss, this unrelenting light. And for her, there was this divine sound that she would express as the sound of angels singing. And over and over again, that experience gave her a lot of strength. It was like the best thing that ever happened to her. She really liked it. <laughs> she liked it so much <laughs> that she really wanted to die. Uh, she didn't have that much in her life that was so exciting. Uh, she wanted to be there. My mother understood something very profoundly about death. Um, that it actually wasn't death. So it's important to ask yourself, what is it? What is death? What is birth? What is life? I grew up in this land, this land just like here, about an hour away from here. And as a child, I would really roam uh, before all of the development happened in, um, and that was that, that change from real country to just incredible urban sprawl was devastating to me as a kid because I loved the, the ponds and lakes and forests, the meadows, the fields, the swamps. I loved swamps. Uh, and in New England, there's a real beauty in the seasons. They're so clear. You can't, you can't mistake winter and summer. <laughs> in Hawaii, it's a little much less clear, but in, in New England, there's definitely a spring, there's definitely a summer, there's definitely a fall, there's definitely a winter. And one tends to learn a lot from that, this profundity of change. For me, the winter was so beautiful. It was so alive. And even though people would talk about it as a time of death, when I would look at a snowflake, I couldn't believe it would be considered death. If you look at a snowflake, it's just this beautiful, unique perfection. It's like the gift from the angels, these, these snowflakes. Um, so I didn't think of it as an end. You know, it might be cold, it might be harsh, but not a final thing. Autumn was my favorite season, and it's like the colors of the leaves. It's like there's this incredible fire. 
And to me, that's how I think of death. It's like this, the reds and the oranges and the yellows. You must have had the experience, I'm sure, of looking at a tree in the last few weeks and just being just awestruck at the beauty of that kind of change. You know, it's just so beautiful. Is that horrible, that change? The color of the sky here in autumn is this impeccable blue, the sound of the wind. If you see um, the white pine trees as their golden needles fall, when they lose some of their needles in the fall to make it through winter, it's like there's this carpet of needles that I've always thought lying down and, and dying would be just so perfect. It's like you just get covered with these needles. I found it really hard as a child to see this change as negative. In fact, I thought of the change as so beautiful. Pretty soon, the fire will be gone. And when we start into late October, early November, there's a very distinct change, and it's like it becomes smoky or gray. It's like after the fire, there's this smoke. It's like ashes, gray. November, <laughs> November can be hard. It's so stark. It's like the fire goes out. It's just smoldering. Winter in New England is very harsh. You know, as things have gotten mar- modern, it's a lot easier. But it, it's not, not an easy time. Um, as my father said, especially if you're fighting it, you know, if you're going out in it, working in it, uh, it's not so easy to come to terms with. So I had this kind of view of life it's quite an innocent view as a child through this change in nature. But then when my mother got sick, which was when I was about nine, she had a very slow death, just incredibly painful, incredibly slow. And I, I, you know, it's like that innocence just got blasted. And first she had breast cancer, and then she had mastectomies, and then she had a brain tumor. And then she broke her hip, um, and you know, see, she started having seizures, and I would, um, I would be the one who had to get her first in and out of hospitals. Um, And I was quite young. And when I would see her in the bed at home, or in the nursing home, or in the hospitals, her eyes were like a... um, a beautiful wild deer. You know, she was so quiet. She didn't talk about her experience. But you know, if you ever have that luck of looking into a deer's eyes, they're so um, wild and beautiful. She had those kind of eyes. And when I would look in her eyes, I would see this just question, you know, why? You know, why is it like this? Why is it taking so long? It's really hard to come to terms with a death like that. It's very painful, very difficult. There were so many things that I didn't open to. You know, there were so many things I didn't accept. And her death was such a powerful teaching for me because of that slowness and the agony of it. The most um, profound thing for me was touching her body when she died, and that change from warm to cool to cold was like an electric shock that I never recovered from. You know, it was like something happened. It was like an. It's so interesting because again, there's this very inter entwined relationship for me with my mother of birth and death. So at her death, I felt like I woke up, I took birth spiritually. It's like I really got that all conditioned things are arising and passing away on such a deep level. I mean, it was just total. 
And I knew at that moment it was going to happen to me. I knew at that moment it was going to happen to everybody I knew, everything I knew. It was just total, uh, just from a change in temperature. We take for granted the warmth in the body, but when you touch a dead body, it's cold, it's final, it's different, um, and it wakes us up. It's not intellectual. I've spent the rest of my life trying to understand this. That's how powerful a teaching that was for me. Searching, searching, searching. Um, I searched so deeply to try to understand. I was really looking to understand that there'd be something deeper than that uh, and for help in accepting that death happen. And so I know now that I was really searching for acceptance of death. I was uh, searching for peace. And I was searching for that peace that I've, I've been talking about. All conditioned things are arising and passing away. And understanding that brings the greatest kind of happiness. I was searching for that, but I didn't know it. There were so many layers of resistance to my mother's dying process and death. Five years after my mother died, when I was 18, I um, was in college. And it was a beautiful autumn day, kind of like today. Cold, um, beautiful colors, blue sky. And I was driving along. And I was just driving along the road and just looking at the colors. And I had that memory of how I saw Autumn as a child. And for those five years, I must have just shut down so tremendously. Um, I didn't even know it. But I was driving along and I was seeing the colors and I saw again how beautiful death is. You know, how beautiful that change is. And something in my heart, it was like, you know, if a woman gives birth and before she gives birth, the waters break. It was like the waters burst, the dam broke. And I just was sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. I just had no idea I was holding all that. Just, just this grief. And it came out of that beautiful moment of acceptance that death is okay. It was like all of those years as a child of being so deeply connected to that change in nature. Um, there was just a certain moment. You can't control these moments. Uh, but that connection to the beauty, the connection to that, um, you know, animal-like acceptance of life gave me the strength to feel the grief. I'm talking about this because it applies to all of us. You know, you might not have had a parent die yet, <laughs> but we all have it happen. But I'm really talking about life. The more you see clearly how much life is changing, you have to face the grief in that. It's so profound. You know, whether it's, it's the death of an individual or a death of a moment, um, but it's just passing away, <laughs> it's falling apart. And in the meditation process, there's a real grieving that has to happen in that. You know, it's, it's very profound, this loss, this constant birth, this constant death, this constant loss. It's very intense. So I'm not trying to say that this experience is any different from anything you, you have. It's universal. There's a certain strength that comes from understanding that death is okay. And we have to sometimes find that in places like nature, where it, it's, it's so natural. Um, there's a little saying that, I don't know who wrote it, it's from an old Chinese hermit poet. But he said, there is life. 
There must be death. An early end is not fate's hurry. There is life. There must be death. An early end is not fate's hurry. I taught school for many years before I did this, and uh, one of the ways I used to talk with children about death would be to have them imagine the planet, the Earth, and to imagine if all the people, all the human beings that ever lived in this world didn't die. And then to imagine not only the human beings, but what about all the elephants and all the kangaroos and all the snakes and all the birds, if nothing ever died. You know, and they sit there and it's really, it really hits children and, you know, and they get it. It's like really crowded, you know. <laughs> you know? No room for me. You know, it's like, they, it's so clear that, you know, what if nothing died? Not only beings, but trees. They're just, it just, it's, life couldn't happen. It, it has to move. There has to be death, or there'd be no room for children. There has to be death, or there'd be no room for anything. That's the nature of life. There is life. There must be death. An early end is not fate's hurry. We all have our time to go, uh, but we never know when that is. That's just, <laughs> that's just the way it is. Uh, and it's arrogant to think otherwise. You know, it's very, it's just missing the whole point if we think otherwise. The not facing that is what puts us to sleep. Don Juan will talk about using death as an advisor, you know, that that's the best advisor we can have. It's like that's that understanding that death can happen at any moment is what really keeps us awake. And this doesn't mean that we don't care about ourselves, that we don't care about our body, that we don't care about our mind. The hard thing in life is this balance of being able to stay connected even though everything's passing away. You know, it would be easy to just say, okay, I'm just going to step away and be detached and not connect to anything. I won't you know, reject the body, reject the mind, reject the heart, because why bother? It's just going to die anyway. You know, but that's not being connected, that's not caring. You know, so it, that's an easy thing. But to be able to really not get passive, to not give up, to not reject, but to just stay very present with life, to stay as deeply connected as we can and detached, that's the beauty, you know, to really learn from the seasons how to do that. You can learn in this time. The three-month retreat is at the most wonderful time in New England because you've got this incredible outer um, process that you can see every day of this process of letting go. It's just so amazing to be part of that. Uh, It's the most beautiful time of year. And that outer, outer experience can keep giving you the strength to understand it on an inner level. One of my favorite stories is um, of Suzuki Roshi's death. And he was the great Zen teacher who wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And when he was dying, just before he died, he said, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And to me that is so incredible, you know, to just be that honest, 
to be that simple, to be so in the moment, that's a gift for all of us. Because that's how we would feel. <laughs> you know, we're these unique, incredible beings. You, we're, we're irreplaceable. Every one of us is irreplaceable. If you look at your fingerprints on your hands, you know, there are these worlds, these mysterious worlds that are, each of us is different, that distinguish us. We, we're incredibly unique. Um, I have a friend whose dog died, and she was so close to this dog. She had him for years and years, and she was closer to the dog than any, any, any being. And when her dog died, you know, she didn't get another dog, and she was feeling the loss of her dog. And someone said to her, you know, why don't you replace your dog? Get another dog. And she said, I can't replace my dog. You know, I'm waiting until I really can let her go. Um, but I can never replace her. Uh, we, we are irreplaceable. You wouldn't feel like you want to die if you really loved life, you know, if you really connected. You could, you could feel that feeling, and then you could accept dying. If you can accept not wanting to die, you can accept dying. And it's, it, to me, that being able to say that, you know, this great Zen master who could just very simply state something like that, it's so courageous. It's because he was, it's very Zen, you know, just, just say what's in the moment, the suchness of that. It allows us all to die the way we need to die, however it happens. I was going to talk a lot more about <laughs> change. Um, there's more than just the body, you know, and that the profundity of birth and death. There's the incredible sense of earth, air, fire, and water that we're touching into uh, when we're aware of pressure or tingling or warmth. Uh, I'd really encourage you to just keep opening to the sense of the body being this incredible change of earth, air, fire, and water. Because the more you directly experience just solidity of the body, earth element, the more you can relate to that's what a deer is experiencing. That's what a, a turtle is experiencing. We're all very interconnected. The body is really just this transformation of earth, air, fire, and water. And you can only get that if you let go of the concept of leg and really just experience air moving. Uh, you might go through that millions of times and not know why you're doing it, but it's to, to get that I am not my body. And it cuts through the identification with it. I didn't have time to talk about the mind or the heart, emotions. There's a, more to be said about um, change and our understanding of it with that. But I'll try to get to that next time, part two. <laughs> So emotions come and go, thoughts come and go, worlds come and go, universes come and go, each moment comes and goes. There's a poem by Pablo Neruda, and it's an ode. It's from a book of odes. He has many books of odes. This is a book of odes to opposites. So it, there's odes to clouds, odes to waves, odes to fire, odes to rain, odes to envy, odes to joy, odes to sorrows, odes to fall, odes to spring, odes to light, odes to dark. 
This is the first one, Odes to the Present. It'll just read part of it. Ode to the Present. This moment, as smooth as a board and fresh, this hour, this day, as clean as an untouched glass, not a single spider webbed from the past. We touch the moment with our fingers. We cut it to size. We direct its blooming, its living, its alive. It brings nothing from yesterday that can't be redeemed, nothing from the lost past. Catch it. Don't let it slip away. Keep it from vanishing into dreams or words. Grab it, pin it down, make it obey. You are your own moment, your own apple. Pluck it from your apple tree. Hold it up in your hand. It shines like a star. Stroke it. Sink your teeth into it. Now off you go whistling on your way. The present moment. You are your own moment, your own apple. Pluck it from your apple tree. Hold it up in your hand. It shines like a star. Stroke it. Sink your teeth into it. Now off you go, whistling on your way. So I'd like to end with uh, us all chanting this chant that I started with. <clears throat> it means all conditioned things are arising and passing away. Understanding this brings the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. So I'll just sing a line and then I'll just chant a line and then you chant a line. Anicca, Vata Sankara, Upatua, Yadamino, Upakitua, Niruchanti, Desa, Upasumo, Upasumo, Suko, Suko, Anicha Wata Sankara, Anicha Wata Sankara, Upatua Yadamino, Upatua Yadamino, Upakitua. Niruchanti, Niruchanti, Desa, Desa, Upasumo, Upasumo, Suko, Suko, Wata Sankara, Wata Sankara, Upatua Yadamino. Upakitua, Upakitua, Niruchanti, Niruchanti, Desa, Desa, Upasumo, Upasumo, Suko, Understanding this brings the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.